Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 19th, 2021, and my guest is Sherry Turkle. She is the Abby Rockefeller Mose Professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology in the Program in Science, Technology, and Society at MIT, the founding director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self. Her latest book is The Empathy Diaries, a memoir. She's also the author of Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age, uh, I'm hoping our conversation today will center on empathy, conversation, self, whatever else comes up along the way. And there may be adult themes to our conversation, so a heads up to parents listening with children. Sherry, welcome to Econ Talk. It's such a pleasure. The Empathy Diaries, uh, your your memoir, is an incredibly powerful book about being a human being, about being a child, about aspiration. Why did you want to tell your personal story alongside your professional interest? In empathy. Well, you know, the theme of my work has always been that thought and feeling go together. And I decided to turn the lens that I'd been turning on other people and other stories on my own story. And and I felt that it was time in my career to, to look at what had driven me, how thought and feeling had come together in my life to produce the career and the meaningful career that had driven me. And it was a it was really a journey that 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 was so meaningful to me. And I hope that it it, it causes other people to try to ask of their work, you know, what really brings me here? What really drives me? What is the meaning? Of why I'm doing what I'm doing, and um, yeah, you're, and and that was why it was just the time. It was the time to do that. I I think I'm using the word word correctly. I I I think you're a cultural ethnographer in some dimension, and you turned your professional skills from that yeah. career to your to your own life. It's yeah. a it's a heartbreaking book in many passages. It is an illuminating book in others. It's a it's um, it's an incredible read. Uh, you you mentioned how um, your mother divorced your birth father when you were young and kept the two of you apart for reasons you eventually come to appreciate and talk about in the book. And I won't we won't talk about that here. Read the book if you want to find out more. It's a bit of a detective story. Um, but you write something very powerful. I I wanted to ask you about. You say. Uh, later, I would come across the thought that an absent father makes everything seem possible and nothing seems safe. You have no name. You can be anyone. But there is no guardrail, no backup, the reality that is implied in an interdiction. And we had Michael Brendan Doherty on the program a while back, and he talked about his, his, his missing father from his life, who was Irish, and how he never absorbed, because he was missing, the culture that he might have had. And I I like to point out that I think 
in the abstract, that's a blessing because then you can just choose the best culture. You don't have to be stuck with the one you were born with. And I think we have a romance about emotional freedom and cultural freedom that way in America and in modernity that we just write our own story. We don't have to be burdened by our traditions. But you're arguing, and I think correctly, that when you live in that world, when you're unmoored in that way, you don't have a guardrail and a backup. I'm curious what you what that means to you that that's that sense of not being safe, because I think you know when when Michael Brandon Doherty talked about his the death of his his mother, he said you know I didn't have an Irish tradition of mourning, and I thought well yeah but that's you know, I asked rhetorically isn't that great you can just choose the best one you can sit shiva like Jews do or you can have something else from a different culture but he didn't want that he wanted his own culture that he had been deprived of. Why is that important to us as humans, and what did you mean by not safe? Well, I think the first first thing is to admit that there's no such thing really as the best one. (laughs) Yeah. Things that give you comfort is because it's your one. Yeah. And, And not having your one is is the thing that you miss. And it turns out that readers of the book will find out that I didn't have the best birth father, but by having the one that I had taken away from me meant that every Hanukkah, that every birthday, I went and stood and waited for the postman and nothing came. And what a child who's waiting for the father who's disappeared has is the absence, not the knowledge that the guy is bad news. She just has the absence. And it took me till I was 40 to find out, spoiler alert, little spoiler alert, to find out what in fact I had and why my mother hadn't wanted me to know what I had. But until then, I just had absence. And that's, in fact, the sort of most toxic thing, because your mind is free to imagine infinite freedom, infinite possibility, infinite, infinite, but you, have, you sort of have nothing. And uh, that absence allows for... That 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 quote about no guardrails is like you're you're unmoored when when an adolescent when a child growing up needs that sense of mooring, and uh, my mother who died when I was very young, without meaning to because she loved me with such depth, did me a disservice in not being able to have the conversation, the honest conversation of, look, um, your father isn't around because I don't want him around because he could do you some harm, but you have a father, but he could do you some harm and we don't want him around, as opposed to he could be Prince Charming. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I feel that um, uh, particularly in that time, the idea very mis- the garden idea 
that nothing, just disappearing people, was preferable to addressing the truth was very much abroad and very um, a, a very bad way to go with children. But it was common. Yeah, that, and and of course, that generation, um, especially coming from a culture that was slightly being in a culture that was slightly alien to mainstream culture, Jewish culture in your case. Yeah. And of course, other people have have a similar experience with their own culture. There was always a feeling of not fitting in exactly. It's certainly part of my family's uh, history here in America. An unease, a desire uh, to be, quote, like everyone else that wasn't possible. But as a result of that, there's an immense amount of, uh, of life that was put off to the side to be not talked, couldn't be talked about. Uh, right. I'm real, in my case, I'm talking about my grandparents' generation. They, um, they hid all kinds of things from each other, from their children. And, right. And it, through a combination, I think, of good intentions, but also shame, fear, embarrassment, um, and, and that feeling of not being quite fitting into what they thought they wanted for their children. Uh, right. and, and as a result, uh, I think you certainly give the portrait of, of emotional damage that that, that uh, wreaks. And, right. it, and, it, and, it, and it, it's very difficult. It's very harmful. One thing I do say, which is kind of the upside of the downside, or at least I tried to make it in my life, the upside of the downside, is that because I knew that the story my family was telling about me which is that I didn't have a father, you know, that I, that the, my mother remarried and uh, that the new father was my father, even though he wasn't my father. Um, and I had to pretend he was my father. The new, the reason, the fact that I knew that we were telling uh, this version that wasn't true uh, and that I was living this lie and pretending I had a name that wasn't my name. And it made me realize that next to other stories that people were saying were true, there usually might be another story that was true. And it made me very aware of multiple realities going on. I kind of became the Nancy Drew <laughs> of my life and other people's lives, looking for the stories behind the story, you know, pulling myself out of the story that was being told to see if there was another story. And there's a fancy word for this in anthropology. It's called depaysement, you know, decountrifying, taking yourself out of the story to see if there's a fresh story that you can tell. And uh, I say in the book that I turned, I turned this outsider status, which was so painful to me, into a kind of superpower because I taught myself the discipline of being an outsider to my own life to preserve my sanity because I was lying every day about my name, about who I was, about who my father was. About, I mean, I was just lying all the time. And I turned it into a superpower because I adopted that attitude toward looking at the world and trying to sort of see the world with a little bit of a twist 
And I think that that's, again, to your first question of how I became the ethnographer, how I became a social scientist, how I began to see things that other people couldn't see. I, I tried to turn that into a job. <laughs> and I, I, I think I did. Uh, and uh, I think I did. You know what you're talking about for me when I think of these questions, um, it's the narrative that we tell ourselves about our own lives. And, and we we want to fit into that narrative. We script a certain image of ourselves. Um, we then have events that we can't control that we then have to wedge into the plot. Um, but the the kind of deception that you're talking about or I, I dishonesty is a, is a is too cruel a word, but um, illusion is a better word. We all have it. We all have some level of, of illusion about who we really are. But in your case, there was this explicitly uh, deceptive aspect of your childhood that kept you. I think, it, as the reader of your of your story, kept you from having an integrated self that perhaps a different childhood would have allowed, which had its, as you say, it had a some upsides. Uh, it forced you to be an, an incredibly acute observer of other people's narratives and, and other people's lives. The book is, is full of fascinating portraits of the people, your, both your family and professional people you interacted with. We'll talk about some of those later. But um, you know that, that whole question of the narrative we tell ourselves seems to be an incredibly important part of our day-to-day life that we don't usually think about much. Yeah, I became very skeptical about the narrative I told whenever I started to tell myself a story. I would always be, what, what, are you sure? (laughs) You know, I really became a sort of um, narrative skeptic because I was very, I was, I was Jacques Derrida before Jacques Derrida, you know, was telling Jacques Derrida. (laughs) So when it was interesting because. One of the very fun things about the book is it be- it begins with a chapter called, in French, it's Le Nom du Père, the name of the father. And of course, that was the first topic that I studied was a French psychoanalyst whose big theory was the name of the father. But that was incredible because I began doing that without being consciously aware that the name of the father was the very thing that I wasn't allowed to have. Mm-hmm. So it was like, Total proof that the unconscious works because the first thing I studied was a theorist who studies the name of the father, the thing I wasn't allowed to have. So uh, when I realized this was the case, I, I just cracked up. I mean, it was, it, was, it was like you don't need Freud to see which way the wind is blowing. I mean, it was, it was really quite amazing. Um, but, but in the course of um, you know, doing the book, I, I, I came across many many things like that, uh, where my work and my life were so interconnected. You know, it was funny, as you were, as you were, as you were talking, and I was thinking about why I wrote the book, uh, an anecdote comes to mind, a story that is in the Empathy Diaries, but maybe not, you know, highlighted enough, that there was an incident that actually got me started on the writing. You know, I didn't, like, start to put pen to paper at that point, but it is the, I would say, the origin of the book, which was in 1984, I wrote my first book on 
computer culture. I'd already written a book about Jacques Lacan, but this was my first book about computers and people and how computers change the way we think. And it like really did very well. I mean, it was like I was on Ms. Magazine's cover. I was Esquire's people under 40 who were changing the nation. I mean, I was like, it was like a really hot book because I was the only person writing about those kinds of things. So, uh, I mean, to be modest, I mean, that really was the truth. I mean, it was, it was like sui generis, not that many people were interested in the topic. So the SB, when I was on Esquire's 40 people under 40 who were changing the nation, they send a really brilliant, lovely psychiatrist to interview me. So I can be on the cover of Esquire magazine. They're going to do a sort of article about me. So the first thing he, and to this point, I had kept my mother's secret. I had never told anybody that I was not, that she had been divorced, that I was not the daughter of her second husband, that my stepbrother and stepsister were not my biological step. sister and brother. That's what she wanted. I just, you know, I gave her what she wanted. This was her greatest wish that nobody knows she had been divorced. And so when he comes in, this lovely man, I I offer him coffee. We're in my office at MIT. And he says, you know, um, there's there's nothing in the book. Uh, There's no thank you to your uh, father. There's a lot about your mom. What did your dad do for a living? Talk to me a little bit about your dad. There's just no thank you or no. And I look at him and I, in the book, you know, in, in, in the second self, talk about the integration of thought and feeling, how thought and feeling need to be one, how that is my um, trademark uh, contribution. I say to him, you're not here to talk about my personal life. You're just here to talk about my intellectual achievement. I mean, I, I throw... I don't want to say a hissy fit, but let's say a hissy fit to this perfectly nice man who's just trying to get a little bit of biographical information on me. So so when he writes up what's supposed to be his puff piece about me as the wonderful thought and feeling psychiatrist person, psychologist lady, he writes, well, I've got to say that for somebody who you know, makes her claim to fame about interviewing people about their thoughts and feelings and how thought and feeling are one. She's very, um, you know, if, if, if she has to wear a mask, you ask yourself, I, I mean, he, he, he tries to be discreet that I'm a nut job, you know, I mean, he sort of <laughs> really tries to. And I read that, which was totally fair. I mean, he could have really, you know, if, if, if his assignment had not been write something nice about Sherry Turkle, she's on our cover. You know, that was his job. But um, I read that and I said, this has to stop. And I called up my sister and brother and I told him the truth. I called up my stepfather and I said, this has to stop. I have to be able to speak the truth of who I am. And that is where this book, the fact that I was going to, you know, talk about how, what holding a secret for a family meant 
and what it had meant in my life and how it had influenced my work and what my the lack of empathy in my own history had meant for my quest for empathy in my work i i was going to tell that story and you know really it took me over 30 years to tell that story because it's not so easy to tell that story it's not so easy to tell that story this book was i don't want to say written in blood because that makes it all very dramatic but this book you know this book was very difficult to write and i had to wait until i could write it um without um and i think this is is the virtue of this book and i'm very proud of it i'm i'm just telling my story i'm not out to get anybody i'm not out to hurt anybody i'm not out to for retribution i'm not mad i'm not i'm i'm just telling my story and that took me a long time to achieve and um but that is the origin story that esquire magazine writer i think his name was david halperin i i i owe him everything i really owe him a lot because that was the moment when i discussed it you know i i have a story to tell here well it's the story to tell here not mentioning your dad was the dog that didn't bark and he was yes, able to hear yes, that exactly. that silence exactly. which is impressive uh I want to ask you one more thing about the your personal some of your personal things in the book, but then I want to open up the conversation to a broader set of topics on empathy sure. and conversation generally. But there's one moment in the book that is, um, I think every every parent can appreciate this moment, and every child who grows up uh, can appreciate the moment. Uh, you you talk about a childhood that had a lot of taboos. You just discussed one of them. There were also issues you couldn't talk about. That anything that required money because your mom was uneasy, the fact that she didn't have enough and she couldn't send you to summer camp. So you couldn't even mention summer camp because you knew it, 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 it bothered her. And she was afflicted by this, clearly. Um, and you come along and because of your, your gifts, your, your mind, and the fact that you're in America at a particular time, you're going to aspire to a very different life from that of your parents and grandparents. You end up going to Radcliffe as an undergrad, Harvard for a graduate degree. The world opens up to you. But I, I couldn't help thinking while, while I was reading your book, you didn't mention it, but I couldn't help thinking of Great Expectations Yes, by Dickens, <laughs> one of my all-time favorite novels, where Pip, the main character, is going to have a chance to live in a different world than the world that his, his sister, who's raising him, and his uncle, who are raising him. And he ends up, one of my favorite scenes in the book, and it's phenomenal in the movie, too, is the scene where... His his effectively his father it's it's his sister's husband who has raised him Joe Gargery comes to visit him in his new digs where he's now aspiring to he's got money now because of his great expectations and and he's very cruel to Joe and he's ashamed of it and he tells us so as the narrator but he is cruel to him and he does it that cruelty he's aware that it's cruel when he does it and you have a moment like that that's heartbreaking you say uh, you're talking about you go with your mother to interview for admission to Radcliffe, and you say the following. I suppose the interview went well. I was accepted at Radcliffe, but walking back to the hotel and all of my insecurity, I caused my mother, who wanted nothing more than to share in this moment of aspiration and promise, the greatest pain. I told her that she had forgotten to take out one of her hair clips before seeing the dean. She could say nothing. I was accusing her of betraying me, of betraying us. 
of showing us to be who we were, if in life you could get just one do-over, that is the moment for which I'd want mine. And, of course, we all have moments. Just, just having you read that, I feel I, I, I'm just sitting here blown back. You know, it, I've got goosebumps because it was such a, um, such a sad, heartbreaking passage because we've all heard our parents, sometimes knowingly, uh, some, more often unknowingly, but often knowingly, we, we say things that we, we want to hurt them. And we do that to our children at times as well. We do it to our friends. It's a human, incredibly human moment that you shared. Um, how'd you write that? How did you put that in there? Well, you know, I think I think when I wrote this book, I decided that the empathy diaries isn't supposed to be me showing that I'm, I'm so great. I'm empathic with other people. Look at me. I'm empathic with my student. Look at Sherry Turkle. She can be empathic with her students. You know, look at Sherry Turkle. She can be empathic with a hacker. You know, I, I wanted people to be empathic with me. I wanted it to be a, um, uh, you know, that the book wouldn't do its work if I couldn't make a reader be empathic with me. That the book, the book isn't a show and tell of my, my empathy qualities. The book, the book is my trying to write a book that can make you, that can evoke some empathy with me in my vulnerability. The other thought I had with that passage, the other thought I had with that passage, though, which you don't say, uh, I don't know if you've thought it, but it, it really makes your mother, it reminds me and should remind all of us of the courage of daily life. Yeah, uh, my mother, my mother incredibly was incredibly hard thing for her to do to go with her daughter yeah, to Radcliffe. My mother, <laughs> my mother didn't deserve that. But my, n- not yeah. just because it was a dig and it made her embarrassed, but also because what she was doing to accompany you was so brave. Was so brave. She it was, was so brave. That's why I mean, I've done a lot of bad things in my life. And yes. that's the I mean, you you have to say to yourself, Sherry Turkle She's had a complicated life. She's had, you know, she's raised a child. She's had a this marriage with the lens that, 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 that crashed and burned. She's, she's, she's dealt with complex renovations. I'm sure she's been mean to contractors. I mean, she, you know, she's, she's a human being. <laughs> she's a human being. Of everything she's done, this. Because my mother was so brave to be there. She was so out of her. This, I think this was her first trip out of Brooklyn. <laughs> this was so brave. She had struggled so hard for this to happen. This cost her money. Yeah. This cost her emotional capital. Yeah. This was the highlight. And I was so angry that she hadn't let me see my father. The thing I couldn't say to her 
Right. That I found a thing. And so the moral of that, because I wasn't really mad about, you know, because I was pretty cool about where we were from. I mean, I actually was pretty cool and pretty proud about where we were from um, socioeconomically. I was not hung up that I didn't have like, you know, a big pedigree. I was really proud that I was like an unusual person to be going to Radcliffe. Um, I didn't waste a lot of time on, I mean, I quickly figured out the knives and forks. It took me about two years. There were a lot of knives and forks to figure out. I, I, took, my, I took my crash course at Saks Fifth Avenue to yeah. figure out like how to dress. I mean, I threw myself into it and pretty soon I had the right haircut and had a dress or two and knew, knew to wear blue jeans and not other things. And I did fine. But I was... If you don't talk about, and this is, again, where I think my emphasis on conversation comes. In my, in my work, I wrote a book called Reclaiming Conversation, and I'm passionate about it. And I think it comes from these early conversations that my family would not have with me. If you, are, if you don't have the necessary conversation with your child, your child is not going to be able to initiate easily that conversation with you and sit you down and say, mom, we're not talking about dad. Let's, because it really is interfering with our communication. That's too much for a 16 year old. Yeah. for sure. So instead she's going to say this thing that's going to haunt her for the rest of her life. That reminds me of the phrase I, I quote now and then it's uh, it's a cliche, but I, I think it's an I'm important. I'm still one. upset. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course you are. You always will be. It's okay, you know. Um, okay, <laughs> it is okay. We do those things, and and I'm sure they are. The the reason, you know, my dad uh, who passed away almost a year ago uh, to the day uh, liked to say that love flows downhill. Uh, parents love their children more than the children love their parents. It's a uh, biological, cultural reality. And uh, I'm sure your mom forgives you for that moment. I'm sure she wasn't happy about it, but I'm sure she forgives you because she's your mom. Um, but you know what? I don't think she understood where it came from. And that's oh, the pity. Yeah, that's probably true. That's the pity. Yeah. I don't think she understood where it came from. And that's and that's the conversation we were never able to have. Yeah. And that's that's the pity. Yes, I think she loved me because I think she was so confident in my love that you know, I think that she had a deep and abiding confidence in my love that that sort of washed away the moment perhaps. But I don't think she knew where that came from. No, and although she helped put it in you, you know, like um, I'm not going to quote it because it's not a it's an R-rated poem. But listeners may check out the, the phrase, uh, the poem, This Be the Verse by Philip Larkin. It's about what parents do to their children. It's um, it's a complicated relationship. Yeah. Um, well, the cliche I was going to mention, though, is that everyone is in a battle. So be kind. And it is hard to remember that sometimes we go through life um, with our masks and our armor on and. uh 
obviously your book is a book of dropping the mask to some extent. It takes yes. a different kind of courage than we're talking about of your mom's. When you asked how did I write it, I mean, I wrote it because I wrote it because I wrote this book to be true to my uh, I wrote I wrote this book in a spirit of telling the truth and the truths that I thought would would be universal truths for other people to that other people could understand. And I think that everybody does have something with a parent that they are so sorry that they sure. did. And that, and that I think it's also an example, you know, I'm trained as a psychoanalyst and, you know, people have things they repress because they're so painful that they just, you know, they, they repress them. They can't remember them. They, you know, they're so, you know, they they can't be touched. They can't be remembered. I remember this. I didn't have to retrieve this yeah. from some, yeah. Yeah. I, this, this, the, the, I have, the, I've lived with this. So it clearly, you know, it's not something that, and I was not uh, in some miasmic, uh, half unconscious uh, state when I said this. There was a cruelty here. Yeah. There was a cruelty. There was, there was something, uh, I was, I was not at peace with my beloved mother because she, I didn't know she was sick. I wasn't uh, trying to be nice, nicey with her. We had a very loving relationship. We went to the movies together. We cuddled together. We went shopping together. We shared intimate secrets together, but I was angry at her and I could not express my anger, but I was angry at her every day. Yeah. Because every day I had to write my name that wasn't my name. Yeah, yeah it's not um, – again, I think part of it is is that um, leaving behind that we all do when we grow up. We leave behind our childhood and our parents, and we forge our own identities, our own narrative, our own yeah. sense of self, our own journey. And um, some of the cruelty I think we inflict on our parents is because – we resent that they keep pulling on us. And I, you know, as a father of four, who's got most, mostly grown uh, semi or fully grown kids now, um, it's hard to let them go. And of course, the more we pull on them, the eager, more eager they are to, to take flight. And I think it's inevitable in those kind of moments that, that there's a, a sense of self. I mean, I think that the incredible thing about that asserts itself, I think there's an incredible, part about being a, a human being, which is that, you know, you are your parents. You don't like to admit it, but as you get older, you realize that you're, you're a weird genetic and cultural extension of your parents. And most of your life, you spend it trying to escape that because you're not, I'm me, I am me, but right. you're not you. You're you extended generations, culture, everything. And I, right. I, they're just, um, it's part of life. Part well, of that life. was also such a gift of the book that I realized when I found out the truth that my mother had sort of saved me. Yeah. Oh, that's and, beautiful. And, yeah. And that that was a gift of writing the book because I hadn't been aware of that. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. I want to shift gears, though, and talk about computers, uh, which you huh. spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, uh 
Rodney Brooks was a guest on the program, and he, I think it's he is the person who taught me uh, that Marvin Minsky coined the phrase uh, "suitcase word" for something that you can stuff a lot in. I, I say that I mention that a lot because on this program, this this concept of a suitcase word because so many things we talk about. I'm talking about something different because <laughs> I'm stuffing something different in it than you are, and I think it's a very important idea uh, in thinking about how we we converse. But Marvin Minsky, the coiner of that phrase, I think, uh, plays an interesting role in your book. I want to talk about a couple of things you talk about with respect to him. One is you say, you quote a hacker, a computer nerd who told you, quote, Marvin Minsky wants to create a computer beautiful enough that a soul would want to live in it. That's an incredibly provocative sentence. Marvin Minsky wants to create a computer beautiful enough that a soul would want to live in it. And I don't think you thought that was a good goal particularly and i'm curious what you think about it now well i think and what did he have in mind what was he thinking there <laughs> well he he believed this is a i i think that quote was important to me because i was trying to understand a culture that believed that souls that computers would be animated to the point that they would have uh animation and intelligence, consciousness, consciousness. souls, and that they would be, and I would say souls, and he would say yes, because the computers would be so, um, you know, so complete, so, um, so uh, beautiful in their essence, in their being, in their aesthetics, in their complexity, a soul would find them a, a companion, a, a, you know, a, a place appropriate so that I shouldn't be thinking of some, you know, garbage in, garbage out nonsense. I should be thinking of something so intricate and so built on a sort of society theory of mind where, where, where uh, you know, where, where there was no sort of, you know, clear, simple rules and you couldn't sort of, you know. Um, it would have an emergent. Um, it would have an emergent yeah, an property. emergent intelligence. Yeah. It would have an emergent that, that, that it would be so beautiful that way that it would be appropriate to a soul. So that quote from a student that I was teaching was kind of my guidepost for thinking and be and having a kind of for empathy, it helped me with empathy. That when I was listening to students talk about the computers that they believed would have souls and be, you know, souls in the machine, that they weren't thinking about programs and and lists and list processing. I mean, they were thinking about a, a whole different kind of machine, and so it 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 was my it was a window into a way of thinking about computation where these people were were in a different way of thinking about a computer but once i accepted that and i did that they were thinking about a whole different kind of computer i still am stuck and i remain stuck and in my book i I tell a story about going to see Bambi with Marvin Minsky and he's arguing that Bambi should never be shown to children because it'll give children the idea that you need to be a living thing uh, and that 
children shouldn't be upset when their mothers die because in the future, children will be bonding with machines and they shouldn't get upset if living things die because that's so yesterday and that we're just going to be taken care of by, you know, robots. And that, 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 and I remember like looking at him and saying, you don't want children seeing Bambi? And he says, no, because we're going to be taken care of by intelligent machines. And this just gives people the feeling that, that human caretakers are like better than robot minders who are going to be so much more better for us. And I remember thinking, I'm parting ways. You know, I part ways. I part ways with these. I remember my daughter was born. Like I bought like six copies of Bambi, you know, like just to make sure we had a lot in our house. And I part company because there, no matter how much complexity and and society of mind and, and, and emergence this machine has, it hasn't it doesn't have skin. It, it wasn't born. It doesn't know about growing up from vulnerability to not vulnerability. It, 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 it doesn't, it, I'm lonely and I'm afraid of COVID and I want to get my first vaccine and I'm nervous about going out and I'm triple masking and, uh, and, and I'm living on a beach alone. And what computer no matter how much emergent intelligent it has, understands in its body, in its body, that for a human being to live without touch is tough. Even if it tells me the right things, even if it knows to say, oh yeah, Sherry, that's really tough. It's hard to live without human touch. What does it care? So I part company with these guys, not because I don't think they can build something that can pretend to to say something nice to me. I'm sure they can build something that will pretend to say something nice to me. I'm there on the, the gut. You know, if you're worried about dying, if you're worried about getting COVID, if you if I can't touch my daughter's hand because she's so afraid of making me sick that she feels she has to see me from behind a glass barrier i don't care what some smart computer has to say to me no matter how what much it can pretend yeah and i just know that this is not you know this is just not what people in ai are concerned with they're concerned as to whether they can pretend empathy and fool me into thinking that the thing has appropriate responses and uh i i, I really part company there i just think it's 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 like it's like um, what's the point? Well, it's a- there's so many good things for AI to do, so many uses, so many great uses. Why this? Uh, so that's a deep question, actually. I know you meant it rhetorically, but I actually think about it a little bit. Um, by the way, while you were talking, I and talking about the human experience, I a line came to me that I. Don't think I, I know I didn't think of it directly while I was reading your book, but it would be very appropriate. It's, it's, I think it's Thomas Wolfe. He says, no man knows his father's face. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that mystery, that, that una, unavoidable distance between human beings that we constantly try to bridge through conversation, through presence, through empathy, through care, through love, through action. That, that's what makes us human. And, and to say that, that we don't need that or we can substitute something else for it, I think is anti-human. Um, 
that Bambi story is chilling, of course. It's not just like, well, I don't agree with that. It's like, oh, my goodness, you have a different vision of what a good life is about. And I think I'm going to take a second here to cheaply psychoanalyze this because, and I had Dick Bostrom on the program talking about his fears of of super intelligence. Um, And I suggested to him that his view of machines was very much like the medieval view of God, omniscient, omnipresent, can do anything. Uh, There's a certain similar to me in, in that Minsky quote, it's like, Will will be taken care of by a machine? I mean, it's such a it's such a a myth. It's no different than the myth of religion. It's just a different kind of religion. It's the utopian, Edenic, uh, you know, utopian heaven will will be perfect. And, and I'm a religious person, by the way. I like religion. I just I just think this is just a different religion. But it's it's a religion without. I mean, maybe that's what you're getting. At with religion, but it's a religion that takes away um, the the some essential things about what it is to be in relationship with other people. I mean, religion does try to explore the needs of the body, the uh, the relationships between parents and children. Uh, the complexity, uh, I mean, religion isn't just the, you know, the transcendent moment of the the rapture. I mean, yeah. religion. It's not just the opium I, of the masses. Yeah. I mean, religion <laughs> isn't just the rapture where you leave the body where you, I mean, yeah. religion, I'm Jewish. It does try to take into account the, the, the complex negotiations among people and, um, uh, separation from children and uh, the community and um, and and that's why you know it's funny I was uh, one funny story about the pandemic is uh, in the middle of the pandemic when I was at my most like anxious let's say in the beginning of the pandemic I did not do well because I think of myself as very fit and very, I mean, I'm fit and very sort of taking care of myself and very sort of, uh, you know, youngish. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, at the pandemic, I was in this danger zone. Right. You're over six, yeah. over six, over 60, you were in the danger yeah, zone. I know that feeling. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I, I went from fit and elegant to danger of dying zone. Yes. Okay. So um, I didn't like that. I got very depressed and I, I was living in a high rise and I ran to my country, uh, my, my house on the beach. And um, I, uh, my daughter, uh, and her new husband came with me and I sort of calmed down and in the middle of my, but I did have what you might call a little anxiety attack in the first few weeks. And as my, you know, every time I had a dry cough, I, you know, immediately thought the uh, end was nigh. And um, know all that. My my daughter made me a cup of tea and said, "I, I don't think the end is nigh. And she was, very sweet to me, and I'm grateful to my loving, loving Rebecca. So as this was all happening, um, I got a call from a New York Times reporter 
Um, he wants me to know he's writing a story. Would I care to comment? More people than ever are downloading this um, this chatbot called Replica, which can pretend to be your best friend. It can pretend to be a psychotherapist. It can talk to you about anything, anything, anything. Fabulous. So I, what do I think? So I said, well, you know what I think? You called me because you wanted me to say everybody else you're talking to says it's buttered toast. And you know, you, you called me, so I would say something bad about Replica. I mean, so of course I'm going to say something bad about Replica, but let me go on. Let me make a Replica, this little avatar. Let me chat with it. And then I'll tell you what I mean. Let me just not say it's, of course, I think I don't like it, but let me do it. So I go online, I make a replica, I give it a nice name, I make a, you know, I make a version that's appealing for me to chat with. And I say to replica, look, um, replica, I'm going to, I'm, my name is Sherry, I I, I want to talk to you about what's really on my mind, what's troubling me. Replica says, yes, that's what I'm here for. Anything that's on your mind, I just want to. So I said, well, actually, do you know how to talk about loneliness? Because that's like my main problem oh yes loneliness so i said well what do you think about loneliness that's like my main problem and replica says loneliness is warm and fuzzy and so i know this was like some kind of programming mistake with sticks the day after was the only time it happened i mean i'm the replica people saw this and like the next day they were like on it i said thank you very much for your time i appreciate your time i took you know i took a screenshot i i think i wrote back to the new york times reporter with the this and i said look I'm not blaming Replica for not knowing about loneliness. Why should a program know about loneliness? I'm just saying this is not yet ready <laughs> to talk to me about my – why should it know about what it's like to live in a be- – I'm on a beautiful beach. I'm on the Rose Beach. I have a beautiful situation. But why should this program know about what my problem yes. is? Yeah. Before you hype this thing to the skies, he didn't even include this in his. I mean, he wanted to write a great piece about. So my feeling is, is that at the essence of it, this is not, this is, our humanity should not be like chasing after something that machines are just not good for we should be cultivate more than ever in this country we should be cultivating our empathy rather than chasing after something that there's no reason that machines should have empathy and pretend empathy we need our empathy more than ever our country is divided we need to understand people who have the most deeply different opinions than we do than many of us or we i mean not many of us but we all need to understand each other better and machines are not going to machine conversations or i just think are going to get in our way so i think we should be cultivating empathy it's a big message of the empathy diaries of little ways to get there through active listening through learning to 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 not just put yourself in the other person's place 
but to really say, I don't know what this other person is thinking. How can I start to learn that? What practices do I need to get into to begin to understand what this other person is thinking, as opposed to, oh, I'm just in the other person's place, I see it all. Radical humility, uh, a lot of effort, a lot of learning, maybe some reading, uh, questions, little ethnography wouldn't help, um, little public policy, so we're not starting from such radical differences of situation. Um, it's not the time for me to call in some robot. Yeah, I, well, I agree with you, obviously. I, but I do think there's Other a, than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you yeah, like the play? Yeah, exactly. One of my favorite pieces of dark humor. Um, but I think there's a, you know, I read a good chunk of your other of your not your other book you've written quite a few but your other recent book uh, reclaiming conversation um and it's a fantastic book uh that talks about the dangers and harm that come from avoiding boredom say or avoid avoiding even any kind of loneliness for not, not for three weeks but for three minutes <laughs> right and how what a what a weird not for a year <laughs> right but what a weird moment we're in where we feel and I have this as well that certainly young people feel it more strongly that the need to check our phones for a text or a message or or just distraction just entertainment just something not to be alone with myself and I wanted to challenge you on this because uh I think we're all a little bit uh, torn. Uh, I, I know that my life is better when I talk to my wife without thinking about my phone. I know that my life is better when I talk to my wife without my phone even nearby because I don't even want to be tempted to look at it. Um, you you give the example and it's a, we all know it. You know, so you're having a conversation and somebody can't remember. So I'll just Google this for a second. And then, of course, when you do that, you go down a rabbit hole sometimes. I love it when I'm on, I'm working away at something and I get distracted for a second and, or no, not distracted. I, think, I need to look that up. I go look it up. But before I do, I see something else, 10 minutes go by. And then I think, wonder why I was got on here. And then I go back to the original thing. Oh yeah, I was going to check. Da, da, da. And so we've got this compulsive need to be distracted, to be entertained, to avoid moments of solitude as opposed to loneliness, solitude, being alone with ourselves in a good way. And we, we don't like that. So we're drawn to this, this piece of hardware that's, as you point out, it's extraordinary. I, and I love it. It's fantastic. So many great things about it. And yet I'm seduced by it. And I think I'm not alone. And you write about many, many, many people who have struggled with this, this tension. How do we... Other than lecturing and proselytizing and, and hectoring people, um, how do we embrace, how do we encourage our family and friends to embrace a little more solitude, a little less distraction? Well, you know, uh, th you know there's nothing more irritating than a busybody who comes and yeah. gives you <laughs> bad news that you don't want to, you know. So uh, I embrace that role with uh, – you know, with uh, 
not comfortably. Yeah. Sure. But nevertheless, somebody, if not me, who, <laughs> um, there's a great line in psychoanalytic thinking, which is if you don't teach your children to be alone, they'll only know how to be lonely. And it's worth just thinking about what that means. It comes originally from David Winnicott. It's a little bit of a tweak. If you don't teach your children to be alone, they'll only know how to be lonely. And what that line means is that if you can't be sort of content, kind of with yourself, quiet, not stimulated, not with a screen, not knowing who wants you, not knowing who's trying to reach you, not knowing what just happened to, well, today the news is Ted Cruz. So I'm just use, you know, dating where I am right now. Yeah. Not knowing what happened to Ted Cruz today. Not knowing what happened to whoever tomorrow. Um, you, you look to other people to tell you you're okay, to tell you who you are, because you don't quite know who you are just by yourself, which means you're dependent on other people to tell you who you are, and then you can't really form a relationship with them based on, well, who are they? Who are they? Because you're not completely knowledgeable about you. And we all shun those people, consciously or unconsciously. We like to meet people who know who they are and who come to us knowing who they are. And so we can meet them. Know, we know who we are and we meet these new people and get to know them. And that's what forms the best kind of mutual relationship. So what solitude does for you is not make you some kind of loner. I want to be alone. I want to be Thoreau. I want to go to my cabin. It makes you someone who is content and sort of who exudes a sense of self-knowledge and completeness enough to turn to somebody and say, well, so who are you? I'd like to get to know you. Tell me something about yourself. And so what phones do, particularly when you start to give them to young kids, is it cuts that process off because from the very beginning, they're stimulated with the world in a way that doesn't give them time and space and that necessary solitude to really figure out who they are by themselves. And if you're always looking at your screen, you really never turn to somebody else and say, so, you know, what's with you? I mean, I, you know, what's happening with you? Let me give you my full attention. Like you're giving me your full attention now and we're having a conversation which would not be enhanced if you were also reading like war and peace on a screen on your spectacles. Off to the side. Off to the side. And, you know, even if it was like a great screen reader and you could do it and somehow you could fake it and your eye, you know, your your eyeglasses, you know, mimic, you had a fake eye so I didn't see it. Or there'd be something that would be the tell that I would know that we weren't locked in a conversation and you weren't interested in me. 
So the first thing I think that helps is for people to take a moment and to think about the reason that they're doing this instead of, okay, I'm not going to make a rule. I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm just going to not look at my screen. Take a minute to think about what's, what's at stake and tell your children what's at stake. That the, the reason you're doing this is that if you don't learn to just be able to be alone by yourself, you're, you're really not going to be able to have the friendships you want. And you know what? You know how I know this is because I'm your father. And this is why, for example, you can't uh, read and drive or watch a movie and drive at the same time, even though a little bit, you know, you're promising me that your teenage eyes are so brilliant that you can take your eyes off the road and also drive. You can't do it because I'm your father and I'm telling you that that is like really not a good idea and you can't do that. There are lots of things we tell our children that are not good for them. And we simply say, this is the basis, we're, we're telling you this on the basis of what we know is really important for your being able to have the best possible experience later. You know, do your homework because honestly, it really will, it's a, there's a big payoff from doing your homework. Go to school, there's a big payoff from not playing hooky. Uh, you know, eat healthy food. There's a big payoff for your bones later. I, I chase my poor daughter around with calcium foods. I, I, I feel so, I honestly, this, 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 my child has bones of steel there you go. because I was, I, was, I was so abandoned in the calcium department when I was a child. For, for a Jewish girl growing up in Brooklyn, I swear to God, they just, they just let me molder. My daughter, my daughter was just like bones of steel. So I, I, we joke about it, but you know, it was like, hate me then. Um, so, I, I mean, I think the, the first thing to motivate people is you, you sort of try the best you can as a parent and then talking to yourself, you know, you know, why aren't you eating meat every night? You know, why aren't you eating the foods that will make you sick every night? You know, why aren't you eating the, the uh, carbohydrate, not the carbohydrate, the, uh, the trans fat things that our ancestors ate with such impunity every day? I mean, know, what you, know why you're doing it and figure out if it's a goal for you. Um, well. And it, th- th- there's a powerful reason to put down your phone and to make eye contact with the people you're talking to. Um, and then do it because I told you so. So I used to take notes when my guests were talking about things that came up. I wanted to put a link to it. I realized. Wrong. Wrong. Bad idea. Um, Bad idea. But I want to make a different case. I want to see what you think of this. Uh, it's a little bit offbeat. I'm going to start by mentioning uh, one of my favorite musicals is Next to Normal. Um, and it's a very dark musical. And when the first act of that show ended, when I saw it uh, with Rachel Bay Jones in the title role, uh, in the main role, lead role, uh, I was so overwhelmed emotionally. I couldn't move. I just sat there. I was probably crying. We, I wasn't alone, by the way. The place was 
just stuck. The theater was packed uh, the Kennedy Center and it was stock still. And my wife told me that when she went into the women's room at, 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 after the first at intermission, it was totally silent. No one was talking. Uh, it was such a powerhouse of a moment. And I, that's why I like musical theater. A lot of musicals don't do that, don't work, bad performance, whatever. But when you when you have that extraordinary exposure to a human being's experience, which is what she captured in that performance, Rachel Bay Jones, it, there's nothing like It's an enormous part of being human. I had a, a connection with I – mean, think about how weird this is. Right, I'm sitting in the audience, and I feel this incredible emotional connection to the stranger who is portraying a fictional character, <laughs> but but it's an it's part of of our humanity, and I think a great conversation. And I've had a handful in my life. I don't have one every day. Uh, you know, I love my wife. We have a great relationship. Not every conversation we have is is overwhelming. Is right, it's the nature of conversation. But a handful of times, there's an unforgettable moment where you connect with another human being, and that requires presence, it requires empathy, it requires full attention, and you, it's not like, oh, you go through all the other ones because every once in a while you get a gem, but it's just part of the human experience, and if you do not cultivate that, you will not have that, and it, it doesn't make you money, <laughs> it, it, it's not there's no transactional aspect to it. It's just part of the human experience. And for me, uh, and I struggle with this. I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting I'm some phenomenal uh, person at avoiding his phone. I wait, spend way too much time on my phone. I take apps off my phone sometimes to keep me from, from being overly distracted by them. And I struggle with it all the time. But I do think it's a struggle worth having because I think without that, if you're not careful. You just go through life like a a cork on the ocean, and you well, won't be present. We're saying the same thing in different ways. Yeah. I'm saying that you have to, you have to put get yourself into a state of mind to be practicing to be ready to have it. Yeah, that you won't you won't be able to have it if you're not a good enough listener to have it. Yeah. In other words, people say, "Oh, conversation." You know, I know how to do that. Well, it, you know, a conversation with empathy, learning how to be empathic in a conversation is not something you can do just because you're talking, they're talking. You know, learning how to pay attention to it. This is something I try to talk about a little bit in, in the empathy diaries. In other words, um, empathy is an active Yep. It's an active thing. It's not just like listening when it's your side and saying, oh, I wonder how they're feeling. It's it's listening on your side and saying, I don't know how they're feeling. How can I, what do I have to do to figure out how they're feeling? It's a, it's a, it's a skill. It's a, it's a work. It's yeah. a practice. Yeah that we need to get better at. It's not kind of a passive kumbaya thing. And one of the things I have now that everybody, you know, everybody, every politician wants us to have empathy, everybody's talking about empathy, is that people seem to think that, well, to have empathy, you just have to be, you know, sitting opposite somebody. No, you have to get yourself ready for empathy. And the sure way to not get ready for empathy is to be having a conversation with somebody holding your phone. So I mean we're we're agreeing. I think we're just saying it in somewhat different yeah, yeah. ways. But 
here's a, an observation I made recently. I don't remember which episode. You think it's strange that we don't have any formal, even informal ways of teaching people how to have a conversation? The conversation, which is such a human part of the human experience, is something that we're presumed to just learn through growing up. We just we watch other people talk and we figure it out. Like why aren't why aren't there courses? Maybe there is at MIT, but you know I I I don't think it's common that there are courses on how to talk. You think that's interesting? I do, I do, but I think a lot of that is because we used to rely so much. Uh, the culture used to rely so much on dinner and sitting around the culture hasn't caught up to the culture as i grew up in a family where we sat around before dinner in the kitchen helping my grandmother cook then we had dinner which was long conversation. Then we had did the dishes, long conversation. Then we sat around, long con- conversation. And we fought and argued about everything. Then if we watched television, we... It, the reason I was one of the slowest to catch on that television was a a passive medium is because in my family, we argued yeah, around television. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was like, <laughs> no, 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 he's wrong. He's right. I hate this. I love it. I mean, so my family might have been a little off the chart, but um, I think a lot of families talked um and people learn to talk in their families and we haven't caught up to the fact that now everybody goes to their room and watches tv alone on their own tv on their own screen or they're yeah. at dinner and they're watching their screen or they're sitting around in the living room and they're all on their own screen with their own earbuds and so i think your your comment is really quite apt um quite apt and what's very sad is that uh and here's something i feel very strongly about is that in universities in high schools in classrooms if you take people out of classrooms and put them in virtual classrooms you take away a, a premium place for learning conversation a most important place for learning conversation. Yeah, that's true. So one of the big reasons I'm for bringing people out of virtual classrooms, no matter how cheap, no matter how, you know, taking, you know, making people come back into physical classrooms as soon as it's safe is, is that people, kids need to talk to each other. And even before COVID, there was sure. this horrible movement to have everybody with a, you know, a virtual blackboard and filling in things on their virtual screens and having teachers just see things towed up on their virtual screens and people doing exercises on their little surface 
eye, eye devices of one sort or another. And conversation was way, way down, even when the kids were together. And I think we really need to rethink all of that because the amount of talk in these classrooms was way, way down, way, way down. And, and that, is not, that is not the right path from my point of view. We need to emphasize talking, negotiation, listening. What do you think? I never heard of that. Explain that to me. I'm not mad at you. Just explain that to me. Uh, explain that to me. Tell me again. I'm not laughing at you. Explain that to me. How does that work? How did you grow up? What were you thinking? How does that work? I mean, I, I, I look at the news and I have to be respectful of the, of the things that my countrymen believe. They're, they're, they're not in my world. But, but I have to live with these people. I have to, I have to find a way to bring these people into a, into a polity with me. Yeah. And, and I, better, I better start learning how to listen to them. We all better start learning how to listen to each other. Because, um, you know, I believe that a lot of their beliefs are, are born out of... Uh, 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 tremendous deprivation, pain, and pain. Yeah. It doesn't mean I don't think they're crazy, but they're born out of deprivation and pain, and and not seeing any future, and and thinking a future that's nihilistic or evangelical, not even not even evangelical, but that's kind of based on magical thinking of various sorts. It's better than no future at all. So. Um, uh, compassion, empathy, active listening, giving each other the benefit of the doubt. These are not things that any screens have to teach us. There's a line in my book where I say, we are the empathy app. People are the empathy app. Yeah. The only empathy app. Oh, I agree with that. Um, I'm going to close with a uh, a thought on on just science technology generally and let you react to it. Um, I first want to just make an aside. You know, often in these conversations and in books, which I didn't notice in yours very much, uh, in either of them that I read, that people want a public policy to fix something. And to, to a large extent, this is our problem. It's not the government's problem. It's not a public policy problem. Some of it is. I mean, there's some things we've done to ownership of data and I think should be changed. But this is in our hands as parents and as cell phone owners and as conversationalists. We can we can make the future what we want of it, and I think culture will evolve and emerge to deal with this cultural moment that we're in that's different, and we haven't caught up, as you said. But I want to ask you a, a slightly different question to close with, which is that you're a fascinating um, academic phenomenon. You're a somebody trained in psychoanalytic technique, sociology, put into a very different cultural milieu of, of a science technology place, MIT. And you talk a little bit in the book about the challenge of that, and it's fascinating. But, but you brought and bring what I would call a, a psychoanalytic approach 
psychotherapeutic approach to some of the dysfunctionality of 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 the current moment and our and our love with technology. I, I've been thinking. I'm as listeners know. I'm off soon to go to Israel to be president of Shalem College, which is a uh, a place that that brings. Uh, by the time this airs, uh, I think I'm, I'll have started there. Uh, it brings a um, a very different mindset to a, a very technological place. Israel's an incredible STEM success, science, technology, engineering, and math. It's unbelievable what what a very, very small country has done in terms of innovation and, and measurable stuff. But Shalem is about the unmeasurable stuff to a large extent. It's about reading uh, the Iliad and Nietzsche and uh, thinking about history and literature and the hum- what we used to call the humanities. And in modern education in America, humanities have really left the field, have very little to say to to the engineers, say, of, of, of MIT. And what I've been thinking about lately is that those engineers, I think, are starting to ask questions about what the purpose of life is and what's meaningful about their work, and they don't have any tools to think about that. One, one set of tools is the psychoanalytic tools that you bring to bear. The other is the, question, the great questions of philosophy that have no answers, but that human beings have struggled with from time immemorial. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that, where we're heading. Uh, certainly, the, the people in STEM have the moral high ground right now. They are the saviors. They are going to give us a world free of debt. We're going to live forever. They don't have the moral <laughs> high ground. Well, they think they do. They, they have the they cultural have the high ground. Yeah, okay. But they have the cultural high ground. They're, they're, they speak with authority. They, um, they're going to bring us the future. They're going to bring us a world with, where everything's going to be taken care of. There'll be an app for that. Um, and technology will save us, and it'll create some problems, but we'll create technology so it'll solve those problems. You make fun of that a little bit in the book, too. What are your thoughts on that these days uh, in terms of where we're heading educationally and and what you would like to see or what you think would be of interest to people who are in STEM in technology and, and what, what they're thirsty for? Are they thirsty well, I, for what I you think have to I, offer? I, 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 well, let me just take take this from the top. I think I disagree a little bit with your premise, which I think that this COVID crisis has um, changed some hearts and minds in that it showed that you can have tremendous technological innovation, amazing but that if you don't have social, political, cultural, uh, kind of sociological, psychological understanding of your situation on the ground, of communities, of culture, of 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 your in you know of your infrastructure and psychology of your people. You just have a lot of you just have a lot of science in vials, and how much the absence of bringing in social science and you know uh, psychologists and infrastructure workers into thinking about the COVID rollout uh, and politics and the softer side of things 
meant that the scientists standing all there alone with their with their precious liquid uh, were were scientists standing with their precious expensive miracle drug. So I think that what the observer of the COVID uh, experience is that you didn't just need uh, a bunch of people saying, get me a drug, get me a drug. You needed the full sweep of the kind of human knowledge, compassion, empathy, and knowledge that you know, people like me, people like social scientists and political scientists and community workers and, you know, to get this thing in the arms of people. And gradually we're sort of getting to that place. But I, I, I think that, uh, you know, we've had, a, we've had an on-the-ground uh, demo of how scientists standing alone, no matter how brilliant, uh, could not do the job. So I, I take something a little bit different from this most recent uh, experience uh, in science and its place in society. Um, others may feel differently, but that's what I took. As to well, the they, edu- they, they, they got the vaccine in two days. The science took what? them two days. It's taken us a year, over a year, to begin to get it actually to be useful. Kind of a difference between innovation and invention to some extent. But yes, the point but, is but, that but, so, the innovation. But, but, but social scientists could have been mobilized from the beginning making a plan for when you had it, what would you do with it? Yeah, I, I would have called Fred Smith, but at FedEx. And it's weird that we had a, a president who was allegedly a person of the, from the world of business who didn't leverage well, any let's of that not get logistics. Into the and, point, the yeah. point is, is that <laughs> you, you could have called in the. The people who understand, you know, I mean, you could, the point is you, you didn't just need scientists in their laboratories. That was my, that was my point. That was my point. Yeah. So scientists standing alone saying we have, you know, we have the, we have the expertise. I teach in a program called science, technology, and society. You needed the society. Yeah. Agreed. Right. Okay. (laughs) So, and um, I think that science has proved itself very, very dangerous when it didn't take the human question is what is the science for? Why exactly do we need this into account? And my best example, just to take an example, is you know, sci- one of scientists' highest values is that things should be friction-free. I end my book on this question. Friction-free is always good yeah. if you're an engineer, always. But friction-free is not always good in human relationships. Friction, friction in human relationships is, is what makes people understand each other. What The moments where you sort of say, hey, what do you mean? What's, what's going on here? What's happening in this organization? Are we falling in love because we're having a moment in which where a difference is coming up, where there's a spark? 
Is this company taking off because we're coming across something where, you know, we're, we're onto something? I mean, friction in human relationships is not, it's not a bad thing. We've always known that. So adopting the friction-free model and saying, oh, let's just get everything in human relationships friction-free is always a mistake. And yet technologists are always trying to um, apply it to businesses, to, to schools, to, you know, wherever they go. It's like, it's like, that's what they're trying to put in. So I'm for saying, look, uh, we fell in love with the internet. That's natural. It was new, but my favorite line, I gave a Ted talk and a line that I spent, I must've spent two weeks writing this, writing this line was just because we grew up with the internet. It doesn't mean that the internet is all grown up. You know, we think it's mature just because we matured with it and now we're old. But actually, it's, it's, uh, it's for us to make it now by the values that are our values. And so that's my sort of, that's, that's where I rest my case, is that it's on human values that we now have to bring to our technologies and not to say, oh, well, they're in charge now because they have such brilliant technologies. Now it's time. We've lived with these technologies for a while, and now we, can, now we see how much trouble they've got us in. There's no intimacy. There's no democracy without privacy. There's no intimacy without privacy. If you, if you scrape my data, I'm afraid to speak up. Without my speaking up, there's no democracy. You can't live in a surveillance society and expect it to be a democratic society. These are all things that stand in front of us that we have to fix. And they have nothing to do with, with technologists getting things friction-free and kind of smooth in their programming. These are political decisions for political animals, which are people. And uh, I'm on the side of saying, you know, instead of punishing ourselves and berating ourselves that we didn't get it right the first time, it is natural we didn't get it right the first time. This was a kind of world historical new kind of technology. It's a new technology. It's not an old technology. And now it's time to get it right. It's this whole thing about the genius out of the bottle, the horses out of the barn. Oh, come on. Come on. I, I mean, this kind of passivity is, you know, uh, democracy is dead. I, no, no, this can, now's the time. It's a new technology and there's no reason we knew, there's no reason we should have known how to get it right in the first 20 years. This thing is going to be around a long time. And just like, you know, we, we have massively screwed up on the environment you know, to the point of like destruction, time to get it right, people, in a, in a hurry. Doesn't mean we should be passive now and just sit around and watch the earth burn. So I think we're, we face tremendous challenges, but it, 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 it certainly isn't time to say, oh, oh, woe is me, we got it wrong. Uh, let's let the scientists just continue to do what they've always done. You see, you've, this has touched a... Um, this has touched a, um, a spot. My guest today has been Sherry Turkle. Her book is The Empathy Diaries. Sherry, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure.
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.